0: This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. Go ahead and grab a seat. I think you caught the idea. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and I have the privilege of guiding us for the next 30 or 35 minutes as we continue to engage with God. And it is so fun to see you guys here. Hey, I just want to celebrate something. Last week, if you were here, you know we had a baptism service, and a number of our friends were baptized. We had 18 people get baptized last week. Isn't that exciting? I was... oh. It never gets old and it never fails to make me tear up. When I see people who are encountering God, whose lives are being changed by God, I just love, I love it. And I'm so happy for many of you. I see some of you guys here today. So, so fun. Hey, when you came in, you should have received a program. And in that are some tools to kind of keep us all on the same page. Because we know that it might be your first time here, or it might be your hundredth time here. You might be starting your journey with God. You might have been following God your whole life. But for each of us, we want to start the journey each Sunday at the same place. And the program helps us do that. So go ahead and grab two things out of your program. One is this card that says, start here. It's your best way to stay connected to us and for us to partner with you. So go ahead and put your name and email address on this, Uh, especially today, because I'm going to email out something to you if you'd like it that I think would seriously help you with the topic that we're talking about as we continue to partner with God. But I'm only going to send it to you if you mark down that you want it, and you're going to have to mark it down on this card. So go ahead and get that ready. The other thing you want are our teaching notes. They've got the Bible verses we're looking at today. They've got some fill-in-the-blanks to help us take some next steps on this journey. And while you're getting all of that ready, I wonder, have you ever used something for the wrong purpose? Have you ever done that? Like you thought it was for one thing, and then you found out later it was actually for something else? I had this happen when Maria and I uh, were about a year and a half into marriage. Some of you know this story— Uh, She was—she got pregnant with Maddie, and I was this super over-involved dad. Maybe some of you husbands are like this. When your wife gets pregnant, you can't do much. Like, you did your job. Now she's got her job to do. But I was this guy who's reading, like, What to Expect When You're Expecting, Happiest Baby on the Block, every article I could find. And one day she slid me an article that said that pregnant women should not use cleaning supplies. I think she knew what she was doing. So I, you know, I came to the rescue, and I I said, well, you're never going to clean the bathrooms again, at least for the next nine months. I will clean the bathrooms. And if you know me, you know this was a stretch for me. I didn't come into marriage thinking I'd be cleaning bathrooms. And I started cleaning the bathrooms, and the first time I went— I said, well, what do I need? She said, well, in the in the closet you're going to find the toilet brush and the toilet cleaner and the Windex and everything else. So I went in there, and I'm looking around, and I find the toilet cleaner and everything. And, and she says, okay, there's the toilet brush. So I'm thinking, where's a brush? Brush, look at the look, brush, where's the brush? And I see this this like oversized toothbrush thing. It's about this wide, it's about this long. I think, oh, there's the toilet brush, excellent. So I grab the toilet brush, and I squirt the, the stuff inside the toilet. And I grab the toilet brush, and I get down inside the toilet, and I'm scrubbing. In the toilet, and I'm working, the, I'm scrubbing, getting in there, and, and I'm, I'm like in it. Like, I haven't been there since college. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I am in the toilet brush. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> She's like, oh yeah. And Maria walks around the corner, and she says, what are you doing? I said, isn't it self-explanatory? I'm cleaning the toilet and using the toilet brush. She said, Kevin, that's a grout brush. That is for cleaning grout in the kitchen. And she said, the toilet brush is that big long thing with the, like, the bristles on the end. And I said, that, is not, that does not look like a brush at all. But I had the wrong purpose for the grout brush. I thought the grout brush was for cleaning the toilet. And because I didn't know the purpose of that tool, it affected the way I used that tool to my detriment. Today, what I want to do is I want to zoom way out and ask a question that I wonder, have we asked this question in a while? What's the purpose of the Bible? What's the purpose of this book? Because if we don't have the right answer to this question, it will affect how we use this book. This this is a Bible, by the way. You don't see me holding one of these very often on stage. Uh, In fact, this morning, my wife Maria was on worship. She was on the keys and after her worship practice got done, I said, I need to run to my office to grab a Bible. And she looked at me straight-faced and said, do you have a Bible here? Which is <laughs> saying something. Just so you know, I, I have about 15 Bibles on here, okay? So if the Bible is called the sword of truth, uh, I've got like the lightsaber of truth on my digital <laughs> Bible. I go straight Jedi when I read the Bible. So, so I went to grab this Bible because how often do I carry this book? It's a—it's a, it's a Come on, this is a big book, and I like big book, and I cannot lie. Uh, This is a big book. But what's the point of it? Is it a paperweight? What's the point of this book? I've heard it called a good book. I've heard it called a rule book. I've heard it called an instruction manual. I've heard it called God's cookbook for life. I've heard it called a holy book. But what's the point of the book? Wars have been fought because of the way people understood the contents of this book, in the wrong hands, this book has been used to incite genocide, uh, to displace entire people groups. This book has been used to lower the rights of minorities, of women, of children, to cause racial and social unrest and injustice. But in the right hands, the same book, has raised social awareness, has raised the white rights of women, has brought education to children, has raised the rights of orphans. I watched a movie recently called Selma, and I don't know if you've seen it. It's a great movie. Uh, it takes place around the civil rights movement. And I was reminded as I watched that movie that, that the leaders of the civil rights movement found their bearing, their foundation for the movement that changed the face of America in the pages of this book. So it's worth asking. Just take it a Sunday to ask the question, what's the point? What's the purpose? Why do we have this book? Or more specifically, why do we have this collection of 66 different letters that was written over the course of 1,800 years? What's the point of this book? We're in a series right now that we're calling Top Shelf Jesus uh, because throughout history— we have a tendency to view God like a great bottle of top-shelf alcohol. Uh, And what I mean by that is this. Top-shelf alcohol, if you don't know or you want to pretend you don't know because you're in church— top shelf alcohol, it's the good stuff behind the bartender. It's the stuff that's only for special occasions. You don't have it for everyday consumption. It's expensive, so only a select few people get to take it. Um, It can only be handled by a small group of people, the bartenders, who bring it off the top shelf and give it to you. And because God is so big and vast and powerful and holy, we have a tendency to view God like a delicious bottle of top shelf alcohol, not not for everyday consumption, Christmas, Easter, maybe once a month, we consume a little God. We assume that God can only be handled by a select few people, so we end up turning our priest or our pastor into our holy bartender and saying, every week, would you just serve me a little shot of Jesus juice? Not too much, though. I don't want to get Holy Spirit drunk, right? So, but Jesus came. And we're heading towards Easter, and I love Easter, because Easter's the time when we talk about the fact that Jesus, get this, rose from the dead, okay? Kind of crazy. You might not believe it. I'm telling you, you got to come on Easter Sunday. It's, the countdown is here. He really did. It changed everything. It changed everything. But walking up to Easter, I thought, wouldn't it be great to talk about the fact that Jesus came to this earth to show us that God does not want to be some distant deity in the background of our lives that we only pull out on special occasions, but that God actually wants to be a personal part of our lives, engaging with us every day. That doesn't have to be brought down through your spiritual bartender, but that you can engage with God and I can engage with God every day because we have unlimited access to God. And that's what Jesus came to tell us when he walked on this earth. So the goal for these next three, week, three weeks is I'm asking the question, and I'm going to try to guide us through, through three ways that we can bring God off the top shelf in our lives and into our everyday lives. And one of the ways I want to do it is to talk about this book. What's the point? What's the purpose of this book? And here's the top shelf perspective for those of us who say this book belongs on the top shelf, maybe if you were raised in a church, this was your, your perspective with what you were taught. The top shelf perspective of this book goes something like this. This is a really good rule book. And in fact, it is actually a really good book of rules. We know it because there are over 630 rules or laws just in the Old Testament of this book. And the Old Testament's the part before when Jesus walked the earth. Over 630 30 laws in there. So we know that if we follow those rules, it actually is a pretty good rule book or law book, but it's so much more than that. See, Jesus came to earth and when he came to earth, he was asked by some religious leaders, "What's the most important thing we can do to really engage with God?" And they're asking the question, "What's the most important law or rule to follow?" Based on the 630 laws found in the Old Testament of this book. And Jesus could have said anything. Let's just, let's just stop for a minute, collaborate, and listen. He could have said, memorize all 630 laws, and then you'll have true life. And you and I sit there and think, we could never, never memorize 630 laws. But right now, about half of you are singing the first two verses to Ice Ice Baby in your head. And that book was written—that that song was written 26 years ago— And you can still remember it. So you actually could memorize all 630 lives. You could do it. You could do it. And if you did it, would life be a little better for you? Yeah. Yeah, it would. So he could have said, memorize all 630. He could have said, you know what? Um, In the 21st century, that's going to be hard for a lot of people. Let's just stick with the big 10, right? His top 10 rule list, the 10 commandments. Just memorize those. That could have been a good one. But notice what he says. They say, well, what's the most important rule or law? Jesus says this in Matthew 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, all 630 laws inside this book, And everything that the prophets who wrote a number of the letters in the Old Testament, everything the prophets wrote, hang on those two commands. So when Jesus himself is asked, what's the purpose of this book? He doesn't say it's an instruction manual that needs to be memorized. Now, our lives, again, would be better if we knew more of the rules. But that's not the primary purpose of the book. Here's why. If the main purpose of this book is to just know a bunch of rules, then you and I could memorize all 630 laws, but once we memorize the rules, we wouldn't need the rule giver anymore because we have his rules. Think about a football team. They don't need the referees. They know the rules of the game. They don't need the referee. The only thing the referee does is come in and tell them when they did something wrong. Now, how many of us were raised in a church where we were told the rules of God, and God was some distant referee up there, and we believed that if we did something wrong, that's the only time God intervened. He would come down and squash us for doing something wrong. If you were raised in a church like some of us were, kind of a hellfire and brimstone, they took this book and they would like, they would hit it, right? They had to get a good workout. What they were saying was this, you don't need the rule giver, you've got the instruction manual. But Jesus says, that's not the point of this book. I'm going to say something right now that I think is incredibly freeing. But if you were raised in the church, what I'm about to say might cause some internal angst in you. And you're probably going to think, I don't, I, I don't know if I can subscribe to that yet. And Here's all I would ask. For the next 10 or 15 minutes, would you just ask this question, could that be right? And just keep an open mind. Because what I'm about to say is a paradigm shift for this book that brings it from the top shelf into our lives. This book is not a book about what. This book, yeah, about the rules. It's not a book about the rules, the what. This book is primarily a book about who, about how, and about why. Now in life, we always ask the question, who am I talking to? How does this interaction work? Why are we having this conversation? And from the who, the how, and the why, we then move to the what. What should I do with what I'm learning right now? But it's our tendency with this book to skip the who, the how, and the why and move straight to the what. What are the rules? What are the laws? What do I need to do with this book? But this book is about who? Who is God? The answer to that question is found in this book. Who is God? Who am I in relation to God? Who are you in relation to God? The answer is found in this book. How was life designed to work? Why am I here? Why am I here? Those are all found in the pages of this book. And the what's of life. What am I going to do with my career? What should we do for our marriage? What about my finances? What about my My purpose, the what's always flow from the answer to the question, who and how and why. Here's what I mean. If I ask you, who is God? And your answer is, well, God is, he's a distant, kind of angry, old deity who likes to give me a lot of rules because he's a killjoy. If that's your answer to who is God, then here's your what. I'm going to stay as far away from God as I can because I don't want to be around an angry, distant, powerful deity who wants to take away my joy. See what I'm saying? The what always flows out of the who. How about this one? Who am I? Who am I? If your answer to that question, who am I, goes something like this. I'm not good enough. I'm failing I'm not lovable. I'm not talented enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not attractive enough. If that's your who answer, then here's your what. Every time you and I do something that isn't perfect, we will immediately think, see, there's just another example of how I'm a failure. Because our what always flows out of our who. Now, on the other hand, if you say, who am I? Well, I'm, I'm God's daughter. I'm God's son. I'm a person who's been forgiven by God because he chased me down, and he grabbed me with his great love, and he's captured my attention and my imagination. And Paul, we like Paul. We talk about Paul a lot in this church who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Paul said this. We studied it a few weeks ago. Anyone who's come into a relationship with God as a new creation. The old life is gone and new life has begun. So if the answer to the who question is, I'm a new creation who's learning a new way of thinking and acting and living. If that's your who, then your what? Every time you fail, it goes something like this. Well, I'm, I'm a new creation. I'm learning. I'm growing. Of course I'm going to stumble along the way. That doesn't make me a failure. It makes me a child of God. The what always flows from the Who? And God gave us this book to rewrite our stories when it comes to the who, the how, and the why. The point of this book is to rewrite our story about God. Some of us don't have a story. Actually, I'll say it differently. Every one of us has a story, but our stories are all very different. But in this book, we find out the story about a God who's not distant, but is close, who's not angry, but but is a loving partner, like a heavenly Father. The point of this book is to rewrite our stories about God, and then after we rewrite that story about God, to rewrite our stories about ourselves, about what it looks like to live in relationship with other people, about community, about the world, about purpose, about eternity, about finances. That's the point of this book. And there's a guy named Paul who I just mentioned a minute ago, who wrote a letter to a group of Jesus followers in Rome. And I've been to Rome. I've been to the Colosseum where they, they took Christians and they fed them to the lions because they wouldn't, they wouldn't um, denounce their faith in Jesus. I, I've been to the prison cell, which was more like a, a cave or a hole with a little opening on the top where Paul was held prisoner in Rome. And he could hear the screaming from the Colosseum and see it in the distance. I've, I've been there. I've seen it. I've smelled it. It came to life for me. And the thing about the Romans was they had all kinds of gods and goddesses. They believed, they believed that Caesar was a god. They believed that there were all sorts of gods and goddesses in this pantheon. Their sanctity for human life was very small. Women had, had no rights. Children had no rights. Non-Romans had no rights. And right in the middle of that, Paul says, do you want to experience life with God? Here's how you do it. He's talking to these Romans. Romans. He says, here's how you do it, and his answer to the question about how to experience life with God gets to the heart of this book. Here's what he says. He says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. God's will is good, and it's pleasing, and it's perfect. The end is the what, and then you'll know the what of God's will and you'll know that it's good and pleasing and perfect. But he starts by saying, don't conform to the patterns of this world. And in the original language, that word conform, it's a passive thing. You don't have to do anything to conform. Each of us was raised with certain stories, stories about ourselves, stories about family, about faith, about money. We were raised hearing stories, and those stories have shaped the way that we think and the way that we act. And Paul says, you don't have to do anything to conform to the patterns of this world. You've been shaped with stories from an early age that shape everything you do. So if you just want to do what everyone's doing, just keep on thinking what you're thinking. But he says that's not the way to live. He says instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's what he's saying. He's saying transformation happens when we start to rewrite those stories. When we look at this book, not as a rule book, but as a book that reveals God to us. As a book that shows us who we are. As a book that shows us how life is supposed to be lived. As we look at this book like that, all of a sudden our minds, our stories begin to change about God, ourselves, our spouse, our kids. And as our minds begin to change, the what, our actions, will follow. That's why this book is so powerful. That's why we can read this book cover to cover a hundred times and still get more out of it. Some of you are thinking, I've already done a hundred. I know, do it a hundred and one. You'll be okay. Said no one ever, right? <laughs> yeah, me either. Oh, that was funny. But that's why we can read this book and read certain, certain passages, And it strikes us new because of where we're at, because of the story that we've written in our lives that God wants to rewrite. So how do we experience transformation? We look at the who in this book, not the laws. The laws only have power to change us to the extent that we trust the who. Then we start to believe, oh, that thing that God is saying that doesn't make any sense to me, well, I I, I know who God is, So that thing, even though it doesn't make sense to me, maybe it's the right thing. And he begins to change it so that when God says something, now we're leaning into him because we know him as opposed to pulling away from him because he seems like this distant lawmaker. You could say it this way. The point of the Bible is simply to rewrite our stories. It's simply to rewrite every story we have about ourselves, about God, about life, and about love. And as we rewrite those stories, Paul says, then we'll know what God's will is. He says the what will come into focus because we'll know that God's will is good and perfect and pleasing. Here's the problem, and this is why we're doing this whole series. For centuries, those of us who sit in the seats on Sundays have been told that this is a holy book that can only be handled by a select few people. Many of us have been told that we can't really understand this book, either indirectly or directly. It can only be spoon-fed to us by a select group of people. My wife's aunt is in her 80s. She is a dear, sweet woman who loves God with all of her heart. She's actually the secretary for a church of a very famous priest. And he's, uh, he's a Lebanese priest, and he travels all over Lebanon and speaks. He's had multiple private audiences with the Pope. He's a big deal in the Catholic Church. She's been his right-hand woman, like running the church for like the last 25 years. She loves God, and she loves people. And I was out there— uh, last spring. I was staying at her house, and uh, I, was, I was using my lightsaber to read my Bible. And she said to me, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm reading my Bible. And she said, oh, we don't do that. I said, what do you mean you don't do that? She's like, well, we, you know. We're, she said, we're not like you. She's talking about Protestants or new lifers. She said, we're not like you. Uh, we aren't supposed to read our Bible. We go to church, and that's where we get our Bible. She said, for the first time, she's in her 80s, for the first time ever. She said, I actually joined with a group of women. She described a life group. And she said, and we're actually studying just a little part of the Bible together. When she said that, it broke my heart because she could not love God more. But she's been told her entire life, for 80 plus years, that this book is off limits to her. And because she was told this book was off limits, she didn't get the answers to the who, the how, and the why that could lead to transformation in her life. And so if I, could, if I could dream for us as a church, and I've been doing that a lot lately, praying for you by name, thinking about your faces, dreaming for us as a church. If I could dream for us, I would dream of the day when everyone in our community knew how to use this book to rewrite stories in our lives. How to allow God to transform the way we think so that it could transform the way that we live. And I want to help you guys do that. I'm your pastor. I'm your friend. We're in this together. I want to help you. So I created some tools that I think could be really helpful for you in learning how to understand the Bible, how to read it. And on your, on your start here card on the back where it says, I want to apply today's teaching, one of them says, I'd like some tools. If you mark that down, I'll email you this week with a whole bunch of tools on how to study the Bible. I'll give you um, like an electronic version of a commentary, which tells you the context for the letter that you're reading in the Bible. Like, who was it written to? Why was it written to them? What's the purpose of it to help bring the Bible to life? I'll give you some online Bibles in case you're a Jedi and you want to go digital with your Bible. I'll give you some of those. I'll give you some Bible study tools that I use to really help me dig into the Bible on my own. Because this book is not just for pastors and priests. It's for It's for all of us. As we wrap our time up together, I want to share one more narrative, one more story that is the big story of the Bible. It's the story that I, I hope and I pray that every single one of us who comes to New Life believes and knows this story, and the story goes something like this. There is a God, and God is big, and he's bold, and he's creative, and he's beautiful, and he's got passion for his people. And God is so big that God actually spoke, and the world came into being. And God created this beautiful world, and then right in the world, he put people, you and I, as kind of his crown jewel of creation. And God had a relationship with his people, that God actually sees you and knows you. Did you know that uh, in the book of Psalms, the author who writes one of the Psalms, which is a song or a poem, He says this, God knows me. He sees me. If I go up in the mountains, he's there. If I drop down like Jacques Cousteau in the ocean, he's there. Everywhere I go, God is there. And then he ends it by saying this, I praise you, Lord, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Not only does God see us, but he likes us. God made you and God doesn't make any junk. That's the story of the Bible. But, but, we were separated from God. By this thing inside of us, that causes us to think things that are hurtful towards us and others, to say things that are hurtful towards us and others, and to do things that are hurtful towards us and others. And the Bible, in the story that God writes, says that that thing inside of us is called sin. And that every single one of us sins. And if you don't believe me, just ask your spouse. They'll tell you, you've hurt me before. You've hurt me before. But you don't actually need a spouse because you've laid in bed and you've thought to yourself, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I went there. I can't believe I I drank that, drank that, smoked it, looked at it. I can't believe I yelled at my kids again and lost my temper. They're kids. That's sin. Something destructive that's hurting you, that's hurting someone else, ultimately that has separated us from a perfect God. And here's what we say to ourselves when we lay in bed at night. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to go there again, look at it again, drink it again. I'm never going to yell at them again. And then the next day or week or month, we're going there, we're looking at it, we're drinking it, we're smoking it, we're yelling at them. And we think to ourselves, why does it keep happening? Here's the answer. God says, because we have sin ruling inside of us. And until someone greater than sin comes to rule inside of us, sin will always be in charge, causing us to do the very things we don't want to do. And this is where the story gets really good. God looked down from heaven and he saw us with this sin issue inside of us and said, I'm not going to let them live there. They're spiraling down out of control. I'm not going to let them stay there. And so God came to this world Jesus Christ, he was fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life, never sinned, had every opportunity. He was tempted to do it, never did. And he gave his life on the cross. And when he gave his life on a cross, what he did was he took that penalty for our sin that was on us. He took it off of us, put it on himself and said, I'm gonna take the penalty for their sin. I'm gonna sacrifice myself for them so that they can experience forgiveness and freedom. And he died and he was buried. And it's a historical fact. And he rose again. We're going to talk about that on Easter. He rose again, and when he rose again, he broke the power of sin so that you and I don't have to be slaves anymore. But we can actually have God's Spirit come and live in us because God is greater than sin. And when God's Spirit comes and lives in us, it replaces that sin nature that was ruling over us. And God says, I'm like a heavenly Father who's running through the back alleys looking for my runaway child. And then God finds us, his runaway kids, and we're sitting in an alley. We're sitting in a corner behind a dumpster, and we've got tracks up our arm from the destructive patterns of sin. And God wraps us in his arms, and he picks us up, and he says, I love you. Come home. And we say, I can't come home. I've done too much. I'm too far gone. Leave me here in the streets." And God says, I've taken the penalty for your sin. I've taken the marks on your arm, and I've placed them on myself so that you could be free and forgiven and come back to the family. And then God promises us to fill us with his spirit, which leads and guides us. And he promises that not only will he walk with us in this world, but he will walk with us into eternity after we die and we'll live with him forever in heaven, in God's family, in God's house. That's the big story of the Bible. That's the who of this book. And every what in life flows from the who, a God who could not love you more than he does right now, who loves you, who gave everything for you. And if you've never entered into a relationship with God, allowed him to pick you up and bring you home, then today is your day. Today's your day. He's he's in that alley with you. He wants to lift you up. He wants to bring you home and here's how you do it. The Bible tells us that we we call out to God and he responds. We say, "God, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to experience your forgiveness. I want to walk with you." And God responds every time. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you a chance to do that to allow God to rewrite that story, the story that used to say you were the boss of your life. You were the lord and the savior and the leader. write it to a new story that says, God is my savior and my leader of my life. And when you do, it's a game changer, not only in this life, but in eternity. And I'm gonna pray for all of us, and I'm gonna pray for you. If you're ready to make that decision, I'm gonna lead you through a simple prayer to commit your life to God. So would you join me? Let's just close our eyes so we can have some, some quiet in this moment. In the quiet of this moment, Holy Spirit, I would ask that you would be calling and stirring and drawing us to yourself. That you would continue to rewrite stories. Stories about yourself, stories about us, stories about relationships and this world and eternity. God, would you rewrite those stories as we we encounter you in your book? Would you help us be a community that understands how to how to bring the Bible off the top shelf and into our regular lives so that we could come to know you even more. As we continue to pray, if you're ready to commit your life to God, to start this journey with him, you can repeat a simple prayer where you commit yourself to God, you invite him to lead you on this journey. And it could be any prayer. Let me just give you, uh, let me give you a prayer that you could say to God. If you're ready to commit your life to him, just repeat these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you gave your life to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to have a relationship with you. So would you come into my life and forgive me of my sin? Would you fill me with your spirit? And would you show me how to walk in partnership with you as you rewrite the narratives of my life? We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.